Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome to the Wild Tales podcast. My name is Jason Fox, and on this podcast, I'm going to be speaking to some inspirational people about their lives and adventures and looking at issues like resilience and the benefits of hitting the great outdoors. The podcast is presented by the Book of Man and supported by Talisker, the single malt whiskey made by the sea. My guest today is Aldo Kane. He's a former Royal Marine Commando sniper, an explorer, a TV presenter, a world record rower, and quite a bit of this has been with me. Over Talisker, we talk about his formative experiences as an adventure-loving kid, experiences like jumping into an erupting volcano and living without daylight for 10 days, and discuss fear and how you can handle it. I hope you enjoy. Right, okay, so, uh, mate, it feels a bit weird being sat opposite (laughs) your best mate with a microphone plonked in front of us both, but this is the podcast, and I'm... I don't know, it's just weird, isn't it? Well, but I tell you I, what, just before you start rabbiting on, this is probably an opportunity that we never take. We talk, we talk as best mates, but we don't really talk about each other as in proper, seriously posed questions. We don't ask each other how we're feeling, do you mean? <clears throat> no, we do that. We do that. but And we drink whiskey. We do, yeah, okay, so we're doing half of it. But anyway, let's start so people get to know the real Aldo Kane. At the beginning, growing up as a kid, mate, you're a bit of an adventurer now. You've done quite a lot. Have you always had that adventurous streak? Um, I grew up in, I mean, you know my family. I grew up in Ayrshire, co-winning with my twin brother, who was in the Marines with us. Um, sister, two younger brothers as well. So we were kind of, dad was in the scouts and forced us sort of into the scouts and, and we were in the cadets. So we, yeah, I guess you could say we were kind of outdoorsy. Wasn't also a lot going on up there um, for someone that was non-academic. <laughs> non-academic. <laughs> so yeah, expand. Um, did, as, you, did you get out? I mean, you're living in Scotland. It's an amazing part of the world. It's got great scenery, great outdoors. Did you get in and amongst it? Yeah, well, I mean, we we both joined up at 16, right? So it, it was the perfect stomping ground for training to, to get into the Marines. You know, you, you were in Luton, <laughs> which which probably wasn't the perfect stomping ground for getting into the Marines. Or it might have been one way or another. But, um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so for, for Ross and I, my twin, you know, we had Aaron on the doorstep. We had Glencoe on the doorstep. So we were out almost every weekend climbing, yomping around. In fact, we've got a picture of Ross and I on the Commando Memorial when we were like four. Dad took us up there. So really? it's always yeah. So it's always been. How old's the Commando Memorial? I thought it was new. 
Uh, no, I, I mean, it's obviously older than 41 years. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so, so I've, you know, as a stomping ground, Scotland is, you know, as a proving ground as well for then doing something like joining the Corps at a young age, it's quite good. Um, and you, you grow up kind of resilient, don't you? You know, you're in the outdoors, you're not sat in playing computer games, so... Um, I they, think yeah. <laughs> they didn't exist then. What are you no, about? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, fair point. Um, but yeah, I reckon. Yeah, it was a good. It was a good outdoor sort of education upbringing. And weirdly, all the stuff that I learned in scouts in cadets. I remember when you know when you're going through Limston and they're teaching you about navigation, map reading. I was like, I've got this down already. Not to the extent that I needed to, but you know, you have a you have a you have an idea about you know, how to navigate and that sort of thing. So, Did you have any, um, I mean, obviously it's me now, but did you have anyone that you looked up to when you were, <laughs> when you were young? <laughs> Dick. Um, <laughs> all right, <laughs> yeah, no, it's you. Um, yeah, I, I suppose when I was, I don't know, when I was growing up, I was quite, um, I didn't really do much reading until until I left the corps, until I left the Marines. I was aware of explorers and Shackleton and and you know Scott and these guys that, that were doing some fairly big stuff um, but I think more more my um, people who I looked up to were probably people like my dad um, mm. people at the you know leaders at the cadets and scouts which were, were you know close by humble sort of normal people that are just getting on with some some graft now obviously now I'm you know, read a bit more, and I'm starting to read about like Marcus Aurelius and and people like that, and they the, the way that they are thinking about the world two thousand years ago is you know it's super pertinent now. So Marcus Aurelius and Jason Fox really. <laughs> <laughs> You're trying to come across as an educated kind of mind. Yeah. I, I know otherwise. What did? How did you find? I'm 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 interested to talk about this actually because how did you find uh, recruit training when you first turned up? And I'll mm. tell you how I found it. I, well, you know, you join at 16, so you go from being a paper boy to in the core. And at 16, you're working with loads of old dudes that are like 30, 26. <laughs> <laughs> but at that time, you know, 16, you're sort of like sharing a bed space with a guy who is, you know, it could be 24, 25. He's had a career in some other type of job. And, and so... It's daunting. You remember when you go into induction and there's 50 lads in there and it's all open bed spaces. Induction is the first phase of recruit training in the Royal Marines. It's where they teach you to sort of like wash your private parts and (laughs) uh, do press-ups and and how to iron bed blocks and and all that sort of discipline, basically. Um, (laughs) Not one after the other. (laughs) (laughs) But you you know what it's like and you go in there and it's daunting, isn't it? Yeah. And you sort of at sixteen. I look at sixteen-year-olds now, and I think, how how did how did I do it? How did you do it? Um, but I get you know it's daunting. There's you know lads who are much much older, stronger, fitter, harder than than me at that point, and they're proper men at that point. I still felt like you know I was a, I still felt like I was a, a boy. <laughs> you still look like a boy. <laughs> no, but the but, uh, I think the thing with me is I. That whole thing was a blur. It was like, uh, it was, I made it through induction by the skin of my teeth. And I was lit, I, I was an absolute bag of shit. Yeah. I couldn't, I couldn't, 
Bet your old man was proud us with that. Yeah. Well, no, no. Well, you can't. I mean, what were you? Because I'm because I was absolutely rubbish at. Uh, um, my admin as in like w- washing clothes ironing that's what really really stung me did you find yeah, that easy I because we, we're you know I'm the eldest of five or my twin and I so we got kind of abandoned almost immediately as soon as my sister was born so we were sort of like having to iron and do all that stuff so I kind of already felt like I was all right with that stuff what I uh, did struggle with was probably um, probably just like the the level of exercise you know, I certainly didn't feel like my body was it was ready for that sort of a smashing at 16. Um, and yeah, and just, you know, just spending time with 50 men, having come from, you know, a background, you know, we, you'd, you know, I'd never spent any time with any other yeah, yeah. grown men other than my, my old man, really. Yeah, fair point. Just to um, inform people of what the fitness was initially when you turn up you do what's what they called then i don't know whether it is now but it was called imf initial military fitness which is basically swedish pt now if you watch it you think that looks easy Mm. you're just like making shapes with your body and then doing the odd (laughs) press up and a pull up it is um it's horrendous isn't it yeah i mean you hang out if if you like if imagine you're just like touching your shoulders or spinning <laughs> I can't remember the moves but like you're doing that what once twice a day and then you're doing it every day but I, this is this is the whole getting you to to start being disciplined isn't it yeah it's about teaching you about you know following instructions it's teaching you all the basics that later on you you know even now in my work there's probably stuff that I rely on that came from from induction yeah yeah same as you like I hate seeing an Irish pennant on a on a shirt or a button that's a bit of loose thread hanging from from, from <laughs> some clothing that doesn't belong there not Aldo's arms um, just to one thing I've got to tell this story about so there was the one thing that I can remember about IMF initial military fitness was you also have to do vaulting I don't know I have no idea why but they you, they get you vaulting over the old boxes and uh, there was one young guy, I can't remember his name, he was in my troop. He was, I say young, he was older than me, but, you know, he was a young young, young man. And he, uh, obviously, you, sit, you run, you run about, what, 20 yards before you then Pop on jump you. and vault over the box. And he basically just forgot to, <laughs> forgot to jump and ran into the horse. <laughs> and I felt really sorry for him because he ended up having to leave because he'd actually went, he hit it that hard that he'd twisted his balls. <laughs> which can be mega dangerous. <laughs> it's not a laughing matter, but it, I mean, it's, I suppose it is now, but I just I I feel sorry for him because if he did just remembered to jump, he could have had a great career in the Marines. I, I don't know, like that that initial period, you know, 16, join the Marines, go down there. You know, I, I was loving it. There was loads of times, like in week two, <laughs> in week three or whatever of, of the seven-month course, we were like, I'm in the Marines, I'm up. You know, I'm up on Woodbury Common, I'm... You know, I'm doing this exercise and you're, you know, you're just like learning. I could not get enough of it. Yeah. But, you know, I'm, as with everything I do, I'm, you know, at best average at most things I do. And I was literally scraping through with, you know, the skin of my teeth. Yeah. Pretty much the whole way, you know, it's pretty much the story of my life. It's I, just... <laughs> <laughs> I would, yeah, it was, I think that's, I would suggest that's probably the same for most people. I don't think, I would find it, difficult to believe someone who said that they breezed yeah any form of recruit training um, and it's just that constant i mean that recruit training is you know you're, you're getting bombarded with learning about stuff also you know i've moved to england from from scotland pretty much on my own i was supposed to be joining with ross 
And uh, he then stayed on school to do his like A-level. Ross's so. Aldo's uh, twin brother. Twin, yeah. And uh, so I ended up going down on my own. And I, you know, I do remember feeling incredibly excited, but mega lonely. Yeah. Um, and you, you know, it's, it's a weird, it's a weird thing. You end up. I mean, now that's why you've got so many things like military fitness boot camps, all the rest of it, because you have that camaraderie. But. I guess the first few weeks, aren't they? They're pretty lonely testing times, aren't they? Oh, yeah, it, it, it is. It, I can remember feeling really lonely, even though you, you live in a dormitory full of 50 guys in the beginning, but you you are alone. Yeah. And you're not yet bonded, and you're trying to work out where, who's worth bonding with because you don't know whether they're going to be there the next day. But, I mean, you just said that you, you enjoyed it totally and you embraced the whole thing, and then you mentioned Woodbury Common, which is one of the training areas, but I can't believe for a second that you embraced gorse. <laughs> no. <laughs> There's a plant on this planet, and it's in abundance on Woodbury Common. It's called gorse, and you have to crawl through it. It's, and it yeah, is... sharp spikes. And it's also, <laughs> isn't it also, because you have Woodbury Rash from doing, you know, any bootnecks listening to this will know about Woodbury Rash, and it's a sort of, a rash you get in your legs in any part that touches the the gorse because of the was it the chemicals or they were Appar- doing testing yeah the apparently it was war. used back in the like the second world war as a chemical testing ground and it's it's still in the earth apparently so if you're crawling through the gorse and it you know it pricks your skin then there's a there's a chance that you get a like a, a sort of infection from it i had i had would they call it depending on where in the body is depending on what it's called so i had woodbury elbow it was in my ass. <laughs> no, it was, in my, it was in my elbow, and obviously it gets really infected, and there's a chance you might get you, you could get seriously injured from it. So it's something to worry about on the on on um, when you when you're up on the Woodbury, Woodbury Common, um, mate. You finished training. There's a, it, and and for me it was an amazing feeling, but again a bit of an anticlimax when you sort of like sat down and thought about it because then you join. A Royal Marines commando unit. And you're back to the bottom of the pile again. You are literally, you think you're the dog's obvious and then you find yourself. I, so I tell you a funny story about, so when I, when I passed out, um, I don't know if I've told you this before, when I, when I passed out, um, we, uh, so we, you know, you get drafted for to commando, that's where I was heading. And uh, so it's like turn up on Tuesday, whenever the draft was. And, it is uh, Tuesday, yeah. Tuesday, yeah. So I, I turn up, have like, a week off or something after passing out, turn up at 40 commando <clears throat> and uh, the, the guard room corporal was like, um, so I turn up there with my bags and he's like, oh, what's your name? And I'm like, recruit Kane. I mean, um, Marine Kane. <laughs> he goes down his list and he's like, oh, it says here, you've been given leave. It says here you can, yeah, you're, you're on leave, mate. Um, enjoy. So I was like, bollocks I've just got all my way up to Taunton spent I was on <laughs> what are you on about 200 quid a month or something yeah, yeah. back in the day so I was like fine went back down to the train station pegged it up to Glasgow up there that night next day phone call from my sergeant major at the time who was in Alpha Company and he was like what the fuck are you doing at home <laughs> it's like uh, I've been sent home the couple have <laughs> been told I'm on leave for another week Anyway, turns out I was uh, I was in the process of getting nailed for for being adrift, AWOL, whatever you want to call it. Well, so what happened? With so he just he just got me on a bite. He just sent me home. <laughs> <laughs> so a bite in in is for anyone that doesn't know is uh, a wind up. Yeah, for want of a better. So he just he just sent me sent me home. So I spent so my first three days, two days in in the commando unit in forty commando from coming from the lofty heights of passing, you know, and getting your green lid and all that stuff. 
was cleaning out a thing called a donkey bath, which is <laughs> <laughs> not Manor's got this, this old sort of um, stately home and it has a donkey bath, which is basically, as I said, you know, they take the donkey in and wash it, but it's <laughs> made of these individual stones and it was full of, I don't know, 50 years worth of leaves and dirt. And so my first two days being a raw marine commander was, was um, digging out a donkey bath and cleaning in between the stones with a toothbrush. I'd just like to say that that was how his career remained. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> there are yeah. some you get you get very bored when you're in the marines and there's some funny games that you play i remember one that you told me about was run around oh uh, yeah that yeah that's <laughs> it's where people get their own possessions will be confiscated be it a, a bottle of shower gel or or a toothbrush or a boot and then everyone will gather in the TV room and the person controlling the game will go shout out an item. And everyone has to go and run and get that item. And the person that hasn't got it, obviously, it's been hidden and he gets, he gets, he gets into trouble. Anyway. Anyway. So, it, yeah, we talk about the laughs of first joining the Royal Marine Commando Unit, but it is a serious job. Yeah. It, it does entail you going away to dangerous places. Can you... T- I mean, that's probably if I'm. I, I would suggest I'm right in saying that the Marines exposed my me to pretty some pretty hairy experiences. Or, or you go to um, dangerous, dangerous environments, dangerous countries. Can you tell us a bit mm. about your experiences with that? So, I um, in the time that I was in, so I didn't go to Afghanistan. So everything that I have seen and done has been pre-Afghanistan, it was Iraq in 2003, operationally, or Northern Ireland back in the day. Um, so I don't have a huge amount of stories and things to pull, I guess, to pull from on that. But I do remember small incidences where I just thought, what the hell am I doing? Like, how how the hell have I ended up being like this? and Or, or being in this situation. And now, then start to realise that after almost 10 years of being in, that that's actually why you join the Marines in the first place is, you know, you're a soldier. All the stuff you do on the range, pulling the trigger, training, um, sniper course, everything is about being a soldier. It's about going to war and it's about fighting. And I suppose up until that point, it you know, it didn't really sort of... You don't really think about it, do you? Like no. on, on... And we... That first 10 years that we were in was was fairly relaxed time, wasn't it? You know, we we... We did like Northern Ireland and we did a few other bits and bobs, but there was a lot of exercises, there was a lot of training. Um, So I think I probably just got out before it all started going. To add to what Aldo's just said, uh, my first, you know, nine, ten years in the Marines, I didn't really do anything. Mm. I I I obviously did a lot, but I I didn't see any operational, I I didn't take part in any operational deployment. I didn't go to Ireland. I didn't didn't go to Kosovo. You know mm. all those things, and I was I was like, hang on a minute. I'm, I just it was only by ch- it was by circumstance that I was at a unit that didn't go, and then I'd get drafted, and then the, then that unit wouldn't go somewhere, and I was, I felt like I was missing out to begin with. But you know, I, I did miss out on a few things. But I think what happens in that whilst you're still in that process, even though I wasn't doing it for real. Mm. I was training all the time and you're training to be a soldier. You know, you go on exercises, you're getting dirty, you're running down cliffs. You're kind of training resilience. Yeah, and I think even as a young young lad, you are subconsciously in your mind sort of preparing yourself to get amongst some some serious stuff. And I think that's why when you end up doing it, 
it doesn't it, seem to you're a bit like whoa but then and also it doesn't seem real at the time you know I, and like I say you know I've done next to nothing compared to what what the boys have been doing over the last 15 years but it certainly and we've been in a few situations since then where I felt the same like narcos or whatever where you just think how the f- how did I end up how did I end up here but that you know it was a, a decision I wanted I joined the Marines at 16 as you did straight from school you know that I feel slightly strange now thinking back to did I actually think that you might ever have to be in a situation where you might have to shoot at someone kill someone or be shot at and killed mm. I genuinely don't think it crossed my mind for no. the first little bit of time probably a better way to be to conduct that career anyway I'd say like ignorant me. in a way probably yeah. ignorant where it was more about the opportunities that it could give you out with the fighting bit which is very different to what you know people's experiences are now of you know the last 15 years yeah um, we've spoken about um, you, you know your childhood moving into the marines whilst in the marines also whilst we were in the marines we both we both did we became reconnaissance leaders <laughs> <laughs> Which means we're experts in reconnaissance. <laughs> no, <laughs> you walk or whatever. Not reconnaissance. Um, but but was that doing that course and being in a reconnaissance troop in the Royal Marines? You're exposed to a lot of mountain work, climbing. You yeah. Use ropes. Is that what did that spark your interest in what essentially? Yeah. The stuff that you do now. So yeah, I guess like the stuff I do now is outdoorsy, expeditiony stuff and really like if I'm being totally honest you know I, I can't keep saying that I'm an ex-marine you know an ex-Royal Marine sniper da, da, da. you know that was that was yonks ago I probably get banged out in a pub by someone who's like mate get a life that was that was 20 years ago but you know when you the the, the recce stuff like recce leader climbing you know cliff assaults and I was working with um, people like Bill that you know yeah. who are like uber professional who for me, that was like the pinnacle. If you can, if you know, if you can, as a two-man or a four-man team, lead people in to do a job like that, I, that appealed to me. Sneaking about, sort of OPs, rope work, OPs, and observation position. Yeah, like all the all the sort of stealthy stuff, and which ultimately pushed me towards sort of doing doing the sniper course. Um, and I just thought, like you know that. That to me was Gucci, which I, you know, <laughs> Gucci means cool. <laughs> that was, you know, yeah, forget how much terminology we've got rattling around here. It's like a foreign language. But, um, you know, that to me, you know, doing mountain training, that, that ability to put something really heavy on your back, carry a rifle, and then just go straight up, you know, straight up a mountain, you know, and um, or into technical rope work or cliff assaults or any of that sort of stuff really did appeal. And I guess, like, if I'm looking at all the stuff I'm doing now, I remember most of the bits and bobs that I started in were probably in, in Recce Troop. Mm. Um, it was being inspired by you know, the mountain leaders, by the PWs, by, you know, that ability to be completely self-sufficient. And subsequently, since I've been, you know, like, rigging ropes out on my own for three days inside an active volcano, like that, you know, although not directly relatable to that type of job, it's similar to where you're going out and rigging a cliff with ropes for other lads to come up and there's just two of you doing it. And, you know, it, that and that's what I like. Mm. And it does seem very similar to what I'm doing, what I'm doing now. 
Right, before we move away from the military side of things, because it, it can get a bit boring, I just want to backtrack there and dis- explain to people about an, an observation position, because Aldo said, yeah, it's all that stuff that's cool that he likes. An observation <laughs> position requires a team of guys to dig a hole in the ground, make it hidden, get in that hole and live there. I mean... There's nothing cool about that. And you also, at the same time, so you don't get compromised, you have to go to the toilet and cling film and carry it out. So, yeah, I've, I think he needs to, you know, maybe revisit that thought. And, <laughs> no, because I love that. <laughs> Still doing it now at home, though. Mate, so we've, you've, been in some, you've been in some situations in the Marines. You've put yourself, or you've challenged yourself and you've done well in, with regard to that career. What's the most moving out, moving outside of that now, and look, trying to concentrate on everything that you do now? Before we dig into it, what's the most challenging environment that you've had to operate in? Uh, post, post military, military, career? yeah. Um, oh, that's a good one. Uh, I think that the hardest environment that that I've ever worked in, and actually, I've got everything to thank the Marines for being in the Marines for jungle i've always found that in if you can operate in the jungle you can pretty much operate anywhere so you know what it's like in in the core you're you got to have a rifle you got you know you're looking after all your admin and you're then doing a job the core is the raw marines raw marines um and and you've also got to do a job so galloping crotch trot, you know <laughs> you know you got to look after that and admin it you got to look after your feet there's like so many things that you've got to look after that if you just don't do anything, if you mark time with admin or hygiene, then you're coming out the field, you're, you're getting casivat. So I, I think the jungle is the hardest environment that I've operated in. And uh, everything that you learn in the jungle about, you know what it's like, you know where all your kit is exactly in your webbing or in your rucksack, how to put up, you can put up your hammock in the dark, you can take it down in the dark, your admin is just squared. Um, and so I think that's the hardest, and I think it's the one that I prefer the most. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd agree with you there. It's sort of the one that sets sets the, the level of what you need to be at to then, if you can do it there, you can do it anywhere. And, yeah. and, 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 and basically operating and working in any environment, it is about the basic boring stuff done well, Yeah, like washing yourself. And in the jungle, it's so humid, it's so wet, that everything starts to rot if you don't look after it. And also you've got, every single animal in the jungle is hell-bent on trying to kill you. And that, that goes for the plants as well. There's just... Everything just is designed to destroy humans. Yeah, if, you, if you're not actively looking out for yourself, then, then you're going to come unstuck. The, the interesting thing about um, that is that it's... You know, in, in all the situations I've been in, it's, it's never, it's never a, a big thing that happens that, that gets someone taken out of the jungle, for example. It's... it's all the collections of little things, not changing socks, not sticking rigidly to wet dry routine, getting all the kit wet on day one, not doing by not doing the small bits of basics, you end up with someone that's eventually going to be a liability, you know, on the expedition or you know on the patrol, I guess. Exactly, my thoughts. Exactly what he um, said. Right, what he said. Yeah. We've done a lot of stuff together outside of our. Relationship. relationship. <laughs> We've done a lot of stuff together. Um, however, we're now going to start talking about. We did row the Atlantic. We set the world record for the first team to row from mainland Europe to mainland South America. 
let's talk about that so we so from your from our perspective so we we were a, a four-man team weren't we at the start um matt and ross and and whatever sort of uh, at that time we were we were just going to do the the um talisker role um cha-ching uh, we were going to do the the Talisker row, and, and and they didn't have a category for five, so we started talking to you about should we get you involved in? Because at that time, I mean, you were you were needing out and needing space and clear your head, weren't you? So we were kind of like, right, let's we'll get the five of us in this boat, even though none of us had done any rowing. You had definitely done the most out of everyone. Um, rowing? Yeah, uh, well, just being on the water, really, right. <laughs> floating. <laughs> so we, um, so, but, but there wasn't a category for five in the in that race, so we kind of had to go back to the drawing board, and we were sort of like, right, well, you know, it's twenty sixteen, wasn't it? Twenty fifteen. What do we? What is? What is it that we can do that that you know people haven't done before, or you know that that was new, potentially new to us as well? Adventures about you know might not be new to you, but if it's new to me, it's still it's still good to do. So. Um, yeah, I guess we, you know, Matt Bennett, who was the, the boss of the boat, put the team together and then and, and then that was it. We were, you know, for about a year and a half with the lead up to it, we did lots of team building at Glastonbury and none of it involving getting in a boat and none of it involving <laughs> rowing. Um, so we, by the time it sort of came round, I had been putting it off and putting it, I had been so busy on expedition and, and, and sort of working that I hadn't actually been in the boat and uh, and Matt the boss, he was like, "I'll do you. You're Are going you get, taking this seriously? You're not taking it seriously." He was going to bin me off the team. I had to plead and beg to to stay, didn't I? To stay in the team because he was like not putting in the effort. Um, and that was it. You know, team essence. You know, you've got me, you, Ross Johnson, who's an ex ex marine, um, Ollie Bailey, and Matt Bennett, sort of both bankers, city workers, and and and, and actually Matt. But the way that we did it, we put it together, Matt and. Um, funded pretty much most of it, the boat and things, got that all in the water. Then we did loads of fundraising out with that for the NSPCC. And um, yeah, I mean, that that's one of the things that I'm sort of most proud of in a way because it wasn't work. It was, you know, it was five mates that decided to go and, and test themselves in something that none of us had any experience in. No, we branded ourselves the rogues of ocean rowing because yeah. we hated it and didn't really enjoy being on the boat we just wanted to get it done and actually i forget i sometimes forget that we did that yeah it, um, it goes out of my head it, but i mean you have to you have to look at um what you've done for a job um and the, the bits and bobs that i do for a job is that we we are experiencing lots of new things all the time and it, like i often get worried that i'm not remembering things and it's because I'm jumping from one job to the next to the next but we you know without jumping the gun we got back from the row and you were straight into filming again and I I went off in another expedition almost immediately to to Mm. West Papua so it was like we're on to the next thing already um but yeah no the row is one of the most it's one of the the coolest things I think I've ever done um it it was it was just it was I mean there's nothing like being in a boat in the middle of an ocean with, with Tim Peake as the closest person to you in yeah. space. So Tim Peake was on the International Space Station and we'd worked out that when we are in the middle of the ocean, the closest person, next person to us was actually in space because he was only uh, like 25 miles up or whatever it is, you know. 
but that's quite a cool little yeah. stat to find out. We, I think we actually ended up, we tweeted him and he tweeted us back and it was... Yeah, know, he's the closest mad. person to us. But we, so effectively, five mates in a pub over whiskey go, let's roll the Atlantic, let's do something that no one's ever done before. Let's go from mainland Europe to mainland South America, Portugal to Venezuela. Cool, not much experience, jump in the boats, do it. I, I can definitely say that it's it's some of it's incredibly boring and then there are other minutes which are incredibly funny and there are other minutes which are terrifying like capsize or i mean the, the first <laughs> the, the, i mean there's loads of funny stories we set off and, and ross johnson who was in charge of tea and coffee so we'd all been out the night before before we set off and uh and then we get back to the boat in the morning we're setting off and that's the last time that we're going to see land for two months or however long it's going to take and so you're rowing out aren't you and then it gets dark and everyone's a bit like everyone's wide-eyed and you know we're going to be on the boat for the first time at night and uh and then it was like what was it you tell it best where we're sort of like everyone's needing a (laughs) so basically we've We've literally, this, it's starting to get dark now. The, the, the adrenaline of leaving Portugal, Lagos in Portugal, is sort of dying off. And it's sort of about time we should be getting into a routine. And the routine for whoever, for each individual was two hours on, two hours off. That was it. That was our routine. Two hours rowing, two hours sleeping, two hours and so on. Anyway, obviously, like Aldo just said, we had uh, different. We had responsibilities prior to leaving, and Ross's was tea, coffee. We call it a tea boat or a coffee boat, whatever you want. To, you know, drinks. He's responsible for getting together a pack for drinks for the duration. <laughs> anyway, as the sun's setting and we're just losing sight of land, it was a you know group decision. Right, let's get let's get the hot wets on. Let's get the hot drinks on. Ross Johnson went white. <laughs> and sort of went went back into his cabin, scurried around for a little bit because we had two cabins that we shared, all shared. Came back out and he was like, lads, um, I've forgotten the tea, coffee and hot chocolate, <laughs> to which he nearly got launched off the boat. But that was and it It was for like the a next... mega sense of humour failure. But but when you think about it, if you, you know, and, and it, the reason he forgot it was because he doesn't drink tea or coffee. So, oh, that's great. You're yeah. all right then. But what we had to, when you think about it, we drank plain cold water for for how many days two months 50 days yeah yeah, seven weeks it was just yeah we had nothing else to put in the water but i I mean it like it just the amount of planning that goes into those i mean that was one thing each of us all of us had our own uh fuck ups can we swear um each like there was you know there was there was so many things that that could have gone wrong that they didn't you know working as you know, all of us working as a team. And I, I, I actually love it. I look back to it in the songs that we were playing in the middle of the Atlantic and you're just like, this is off the charts. But, you know, the, the, where we were coming down from um, Lagos, you've got the North Atlantic swell and weather, South Atlantic swell and weather, and then you've got all that African weather coming across. So as soon as you get to Canaries, when you look on our tracker, it then starts getting a bit weird, doesn't it? So, <laughs> Things got weird. Yeah, <laughs> things got weird. But essentially, um, we, you know, we started hitting rough sea. Do you remember? And we were sort yeah. of like powering along on these big waves, and and we're going kind of in the right direction. And it was, you know, that that force of the sea it was and, unbelievable. Yeah, that it's you know with that wind and and uh, 
it was, it's like it's it's scary it was petrifying at times you'd be in like it would be bright blue skies but the seas is you know it's windy so the seas have whipped up and i'm saying you'd see waves everywhere just it's an its own body of water moving mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for mother's day than whole foods market they're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts start by saving 33% with prime on all body care and candles then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just 9.99 each with prime round out mom's menu with festive rosé irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate mother's day at whole foods market Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. either side of you and you wouldn't you and yeah, you'd, and you'd, you'd see a, a wave break and it was like the size of two houses and you'd, you well, I remember having the discussion do you remember where we were at how heavy is that wave like how much water is in <laughs> yeah. that and what if that was us that was underneath that break and then obviously we, well, we were me- under one one meters a ton so but there were, so we there's loads basically it's also similar to being at war there's like 90% doing nothing sat on your ass and 10% being terrified at your wits end and not knowing what's going to happen next mm. and everything that you planned for because because foxy was late to the party we we got rid of <laughs> we, we basically got rid of all of our safety kit to get foxy's food in for the for the full trip because we didn't know how long it was going to take so we're like foxy's a big lad he'll uh he's probably double duffing <laughs> every week yeah. so we we got rid of all that safety kit and so the the first bit, if I remember the chronology of it, the first bit we have a bit of a rough time and we chuck out para anchor and we get that out and we, we spend two or three pa- days. The para anchor is like an anchor that's basically a parachute and it catches water. So it's tied to the boat, it fills with water and it acts like an anchor. It keeps you on station in, in a position. Now, From you will drifting, drift. Yeah. You, you will drift because it's not secured to anything, but it keeps you in... In, 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 in an area yeah, yeah. yeah. and so, so the first thing like I suppose Foxy and I probably had the most experience of being on expeditions and, and sorting stuff out so we sort of we got the para anchor out and then you so see effectively like a cork just bobbing around in this fairly big sea which was which was weird and, and quite scary you know I'm basically Foxy and I are spooning each other for two days two nights with nothing to do <laughs> it got quite lonely no <laughs> <laughs> no, um, but so that 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 was like the first thing where I was just like, you know, we're a long way from home. We, you know, yeah. there's no rescue. There, there could be rescue, but it's not going to be be anytime soon. And in that big sea at that time was when that other boat went over, and, and I think they lost. Um, someone died. Someone didn't they? died. Yeah, yeah, that that was, we were in the vicinity of that. Actually, there was a separate group that had disappeared not disappeared but they'd set off from the canaries so we were in the vicinity of the canaries and this storm this system came in and then we got wind that they'd actually lost someone overboard and was never retrieved so it was you know there was a few times when I, we were sat in that laid in that cabin spooning nothing <laughs> weird happened i'd just like to add um and you i there was a couple of times when i was like ah, 
maybe we've bitten off a little bit more than we can chew in. I don't know whether we, I might, definitely we, not, we might not get home. And anyway, the row's the row. Before we come off that subject, I just want you to, from your point of view, there's two stories I want you to talk about. One, yeah. one of them, the first one, is about my incident where I got angry. <laughs> you know what I'm on about. Explain to people. The shoes. And me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Explain so we, uh, we basically, you know, that story's out there. We got capsized. Um, so I'm doing the shoes right. And then, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so basically <laughs> we, get, we get capsized and it's, it's genuinely pretty bloody scary uh boat goes over loads of stuff it's at night can't see anything my shoes and bits and bobs i lose them uh and and just quickly so like Aldo wasn't the first to lose his shoes i think ollie bailey lost his trainers so did matt bennett and so when Aldo lost his, there was only two people left with their trainers, and it was a big deal. And it was it, big you know, deal. Bear in mind, we had four and a half it, thousand it, miles to still row at that point. And it's people might be thinking, well, you don't need your shoes; you're rowing it. You put your feet. If you've ever been on a a, a, a row an erg rower, this the old rowing machine in the gym. If you don't have shoes on, those straps, it's exactly the same uh, footholds that you have. Those straps hurt. Yeah, they rip your feet to bits. They rip your feet to shreds anyway. So obviously Aldo loses his trainers. There's only two of us left that have trainers. So so Ross Johnson decides that he's going to keep his trainers firmly on his feet for the next 50 days. Like (laughs) He doesn't take them off. At all, so 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 he's we were actually worried about the time he did take them off, yeah. what it would be like. But anyway, that's a separate. He didn't that's, want that's to. A, that's a podcast on itself. He didn't want to look at them because he didn't know how bad they were. So anyway, Foxy's as usual. Foxy now sharing the cabin, and like we're kind of like we've known each other for so long. We're like an old married couple, squabbling, bickering, but still sorting each other's admin out. Foxy comes off shift or whatever. I'm getting his toothbrush ready, and he's got toilet paper ready for me. And, Basically looking out for each other, but um, then so Foxy's got his admin. He's he's got his trainers and he's got this carabiner on the back <laughs> on the back of his shoes, holding them together. Foxy and I coming on shift together, so he's holding his trainers carabiner together uh, in his hand, and he's walking down. And <laughs> there's these there's these rails that run down the side that Foxy was holding on to, and this big wave basically came into him, and he sort of pulled this. Uh, he he pulled this uh, sort of cable back and then fired his his shoes into the into the Atlantic on the biggest catapult that you've ever seen. Both shoes joined together, spinning round. Unlike mine, which were you know they're going to end up on two separate beaches. Foxes were together, landed in the water. And I tell you what, I've known them for a long time and will happily take the piss out of them at any point. I literally could, I, I could not stop laughing to myself but I didn't I gave it a full 24 hours before I started ripping him he was so angry I was like if I if I give him any shit he's going to throw me overboard um, I, yeah my I I lost my I lost my shit in a big big way like, like a proper tantrum yeah. in fact it was such a big tantrum he, he threw his trainers out the pram <laughs> and quickly before we move off the row Probably the worst thing you had to do. <laughs> what was it? <laughs> there was lots. Uh, for, <laughs> Foxy over the over the. So so I get to the end of I get to the end of the row almost, and I've had nothing wrong with me. Just bear this in mind when I tell this story. So Bailey gets something wrong with his foot. We we all got these ingrowing hairs and follicles with these huge abscesses, and I was dealing one with all his foot, and they're getting infected. And we're having to take antibiotics and. 
Foxy, Foxy ends up having this pain in his bottom, um, <laughs> which he which he asked me to to have a look at. And bear in mind, just quick, I need to ju- I need to jump in it. It's not just the pain; it was excruciating. I could yeah. not sit down, and we all found it hard to sit down because basically. All the meat that you have in your ass had gone. We'd, we'd, your body had consumed that for energy, and we all looked like we had the we had the asses of frogs. They looked. You just they sat looked, on the long bones, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, you just sat on your bone, and it's like it got to the point where we were fashioning like he, they they looked like the old um, piles cushions that, that people would need to use. Space pretzel. And we were making them out of old t-shirts and black masking tape, and if someone had fashioned a decent one, the others would try and nick it off him. <laughs> It and becomes I, very tribal, doesn't it? You're yeah. like, that's my sheepskin. Well, I, I went to sit down one day on the uh, on the seat, on the rowing seat, to get into position, and it was I literally nearly launched myself back up into space. It was horrific. The pain was unbearable, and I was like, mate, you've got you're going to have to have a look at this. So I I then lie on my side. Bear in mind, I get into like a fetal position on my side, and then with one hand, I pull my cheeks apart. And bear, bear, bear in mind the cabin is just enough to get Foxy in it and, and me if I'm like spooning him or vice versa it's just it's just big enough to get that so the furthest I could get away from Foxy's crack in his ass was probably about six inches bear in mind we're in big sea and he's lying on his side sort of pulling his ass apart and my face and my nose is l- like about this far away from, <laughs> from his backside. And it turns out that, that Foxy's got one of these ingrowing hairs right next to his bottom hole. What do you... <laughs> <I don't>, hoop. <laughs> right next to his hoop. He's got, he's got this like massive ingrowing boil um, from the hair, which we, we're all getting at that mm. point. And, um, and ultimately, I, that, I spent the next sort of like week or so lancing this thing, getting, <laughs> getting rid of all the pus out of it, dressing it. Twice a day. <laughs> yeah. Morning, morning, and, morning and night. <laughs> yeah. Three days in, Foxy was wanting more of it. But, uh, <laughs> but, the, but, the, but the row is, is one of those things that, um, looking back, like I loved it. It was, it was hard graft. There's nothing harder than get only the longest amount of time asleep you'll have in 24 hours um, is probably an hour and a half, and then you'll probably get two blocks of that. Um, and it was it was one of it was one of the most amazing things that I've done. It's hard work, and you know, probably I learned a lot about myself on that. Actually, you know, considering I was probably what 38 when I did it, and learning new things about me, and you know, like temper, anger issues, you know, mm-hmm. like there's all that sort of stuff. You know, everything's under a magnifying glass when you're five blokes the size of Foxy stuck, apart from me, uh, stuck, <laughs> stuck, in, stuck in a boat no bigger than this table. Um, but yeah, we did it. 50 days, 10 hours. And we're in, the, we are in the, I'm, I'm, I'm going to say this because I'm proud of it. We're in the Guinness Book of Records and we'll never leave that because we set that record. Yeah. So there we go. Um, away from the Atlantic, mate, it is all really about you. You've forged an amazing career in TV, predominantly doing safety, and you've had my back on, on the inside the real narcos. Yeah, we worked together on that for well a long time, but mm. the shoot probably was you know all up you know three months. Yep. Um, <clears throat> can you describe the sort of things that you do with? The, the film crews and what sort of exciting weird scrapes you've been in I mean you've worked with Steve Backshaw while on some awesome awesome TV yeah you've, I've been lucky enough to have you on the Narcos shoot it's, it feels like I mean it's it's probably the best job in the world for me it's 
you know, if you'd spoken to me when I was 16 and said, this is what I'll be doing, that's exactly what I wanted to be doing. I didn't know it was television, but it's like boys on adventure, flying around the world, you know, going off and jumping into volcanoes or, you know, into jungles. You just uh, like proper commando comic magazines, mm. that sort of stuff. Um, but like for as much as you're in front of camera and and you've done your time behind camera as well with the, the diving Captain Kid stuff that we did and it, you know, for as much as you're on camera now and some of the on camera stuff that Steve and I do on expeditions, there is a huge amount of work that goes on in the background. It's the production companies, mm. it's the camera guys, it's the sound guys, it's the tech guys. And you look at, you know, Steve and I have done 10, Ta-da. Steve and I have done 10 expeditions. They're um, here now, working hard. Yeah. <laughs> Steve and I have done 10, 12 expeditions in the last couple of years to the most remote far-flung corners on, on the planet. And Steve's doing his thing, and I'm sort of looking after the crew, making sure they're safe. But you've got, like, a camera guy who's shooting, and the producers, everyone's shooting, recording, film. And, and when we finish our day, they're just starting because they've got to do all the the, da- the data downloads. They've got to be making sure all their cards are clean for the next day's shooting. You know, and they're doing it, you know, they're not doing it sort of sat in a hotel room. They're in a jungle. They're in a cave. They're up a tree. They're in some of the, you know, the, the sort of the most remote places on earth. <laughs> What's that sound? That's, um, a, that's a bottle of water. Um, and so, so, so my job really... It has always been in, in television is looking after film crews from a technical level of whether it's diving, whether it's ropes, climbing, safety. And, and you know, it's the same as you guys. When you're working, you're not paying attention, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> Mark, who's essentially our supervisor, bosses on his phone, not giving two but, shits about but, what we're talking about. But the, but, but, but the crew, like in, you know, in Narcos, so Fox and I, we go down and we're in South America, Colombia, Peru, and Mexico, and you're filming and interviewing some some pretty heavy characters that are involved in drugs, cartels, you know, hitmen. Um, and essentially what the, you know, the crew are there filming as well, and their heads are they're separated because their head's in, in the camera or in the sound gear or in the story, so they're not really paying attention. They, they lose to their it. situational awareness, don't That's they? Exactly. It. Yeah. So it's a really, I mean, my job is just a glorified sort of backhander and, and looking after, it, just making sure all you know all the pieces sort of fall into place. And and it's just that it's that step back situational awareness, isn't it? And so you know that, and that can be anywhere from expeditions with Steve Backshaw or working with Ed Stafford out in, in the mangrove swamps or yourself and doing the sort of narco stuff. I mean, it's varied and amazing working out. I, I do feel super lucky to be doing it. On um, just a little little story from Narcos, uh, inside the real Narcos, me and Aldo have known each other a long time. We get on and there's very rarely been any times where we've fallen out, to be fair, if mm. I'm honest. You know, even being on that boat... Ronaldo, you know, he's a, he's a, he's a Scotsman. He doesn't like the sun. He used to lose his shit sometimes when it got too hot. <laughs> but um, on the nar on on the real nar inside the real narcos, we did have a little mini falling out, didn't we? <laughs> Just prior to a very yeah. sketchy situation. We we'd already we'd already been out to in Acapulco, and we'd been out. I mean, it's it's a dire situation to even be, you know, to be. I suppose not joking about, but he just. It shows you the level that we were at, and we were fairly wrung out through that whole narcos thing uh, inside the real narcos. And we're, 
you know, I, you know, Foxy and I are working together. We've got a camera and a director there, but it's still just us on the ground. There's no cavalry. There's no one coming in to save you when it all goes tits up. And you know, um, and we had had a bit of a, we did have a, a little bit of a falling out. We'd been working up in in the sort of it, it wasn't in the morgue, wasn't it? In the the forensics department. Mm-hmm. And yeah, we basically we had a bit of a fall now. We but, fell out over a bloody cigarette. You know, we don't smoke, but when you're in stressful situations, we f- we were like, oh, right, we're having a cigarette, and I can't remember exactly what it was about, but we it, fell it, out. I over can't remember. It. it was either there was there was none left. He had it, or I had it. I can't remember what it was. Anyway, so we got called out to this situation where there's basically a guy getting sort of emptied out a bag. I mean, it was a a, a narco. It was horrific. Hit. Yeah. Yeah, but but anyway, I think what Foxy was getting at there is like when you're that much mates and you have that sense of humor i mean we that kind of all just paled into insignificance because i was pissed off with him or he was pissed off with me and <laughs> i was i was actually trying to like get through the the the, the, t- the tension between us because we'd fallen out we'd had a little bit of a sort of tater you know we'd argued with each other and then there was this horrific situation unfolding and i turned around trying to talk to aldo and he was literally just ignoring me point blank looking away over his shoulder <laughs> not enough help <laughs> refusing to talk and I was like I'm on my own yeah. anyway you know that's my job is, is about people my job is always about people it's about forging relationships it's about everything that we you know in the military you, you learn a lot about you know having force behind you using weapons you know we go into sort of narco land or we do all the stuff that we do and where you're dealing with nature rhinos when we were sort of charged uh, down yeah. in South Africa doing the Veterans for Wildlife stuff, you you then enter into this completely different skill set, which, you know, which which I'm still learning about is, is about talking your way out of trouble as opposed to using force mm-hmm. um, and interpersonal skills and emotional intelligence and all this other, I guess, buzzwords, isn't it? Yeah, that, yeah. That make a difference. Not that emotional intelligence did us any favours with that rhino that charged <laughs> yes. us where my arse fell out, <laughs> literally. <laughs> Uh, right, talking, staying on the subject of crazy stuff, erupting volcanoes. You know, this seems you've seemed to have carved yourself a niche here now. But if I'm if I'm honest, because you are the go-to jump in a volcano guy. If someone yeah, wants to film of a load of lava, they phone you up, don't they? Yeah, well, I don't know. I it was the, it was actually the first job that I ever did in television, and I was asked by a friend who ran a safety company if I could. Um, if I could get them <laughs> into, <laughs> if I could get them into, uh, so it was I was asked by a mate who ran a safety company if I could get a BBC team inside an active volcano, um, and I just left the Marines and you know I was fairly cocksure of what I could do and I was like yeah of course I can, you know and it's in the Congo and you know it's the biggest lava lake on earth and all, all that pales into insignificance. I sold it, I could do it, you know I was a ropes dude, had a military background, I was going to nail it and uh, so I took a team out there. We're always operating in volcanoes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> me, I've always worked in volcanoes. Um, so anyway, I remember going out there and it's the first time I've been been absolutely blown away by. Uh, the power of the earth and nature and that you know it sounds fairly weird I got to the top of the volcano in Virunga National Park I've got a hundred bags arriving there I've got a film crew arriving there I'm working for a mate who's you know pretty much relying on me to to get this film crew inside there and I remember walking to the top of the volcano and thinking 
you absolute dick you've bitten off more than you can chew i had to i had to walk off away from from the crew that were there because i was just like i have no idea how to i'm interested in that what did you when you walked away from the crew because we you know we do focus on resilience and and how you get through tough times what what was that what was that chat that you had with uh i was basically scared um very scared in a sort of um, in, in a way, in, in a guttural way, that felt like you know when you're in, you know when you see and you're inside a volcano which is active, it's one of, you know, it, it's one of the most humbling, weird experiences because it can snuff you out in a in a nanosecond yeah. with gas, with you know, uh, with eruptions, with lava, um, and I knew nothing about volcanoes. We had volcanologists there, but you know, I knew nothing about it. So I walked off. I was. It was because A, I was scared. B, I was annoyed with myself for being so confident uh, above... brazen about the Brazen about what the actual risks were. Um, And I had a team there that I was now responsible for. And there was a lot of pressure. There was a lot of money. We had, you know, it was probably a couple of hundred grand to get a full film crew out there to to do this shoot and and high profile. So uh, I took myself off and... It's, it's the same as everything now. I mean, we chat about this. Mm. When you're faced with something that seems insurmountable, it's easy to talk yourself out of it and talk yourself, you know, into that insidious voice inside your head which tells you you're not good enough and you can't do it. And so what I did, I walked off, I had a mild panic, started to breathe, breathing sorts most things out, and it sounds really it, stupid. And that goes back to, like, true. sniper course. Just if you can collectively sort your breathing out a lot of other things fall into place sorted my breathing out and then went through the individual steps of right it's a massive it's a massive project but okay so today i just need to make sure all the bags and and i'll keep going until i get found out but (laughs) make sure all the bags are neat here tomorrow i'll abseil down a bit and i'll and you know and i'll 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 get the feel of it and and then so you break that massive goal down into manageable chunks and then that confidence comes back once you can start to do a little bit but i tell you man i got to the top of that and and i was scared annoyed at myself and angry at myself for 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 sort of feeling like i could do it but mate that's the first time we've properly spoken about that i know mm. we talk about stuff and we yeah. you know but that's a that's a great story but the point is you might have been angry at yourself but you have in life i believe you have to take those leaps of faith and that's yeah. a leap of faith that you took and you became comfortable in an uncomfortable situation and that's it, where you grow as an individual I think. yeah you it, know it, I mean? it's 100% i know that sounds like me preaching but no no you, you you know when i jumped actually after about 4 days i'd rigged out nearly 2 kilometers of rope on my own yeah. inside the volcano and then you then get you you then get into that zone where you, you know there's rocks falling down near you. It's erupting. You're on your own. The gas monitors going off, and you just deal with the stuff. But it's 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 that being stretched out your comfort zone. Um, and I suppose I think the big thing is is working out when you're in panic mode how to rectify that, because ultimately since then I've been back inside that volcano three times. Um, we've done it safely every time we've not had not not even had a twisted ankle and we're it, it erupted when we we're inside there once you know we've done a lot of man hours and and shifting kit inside there um but yeah it's it, it was a complete 
it was a complete wind your neck in Aldo and, and make sure you focus back in on the basics which is you know which is pretty much you know what I have to do all the time on, on jobs is basics if you do the basics right then everything else falls into place yeah yeah moving away from the excitement of volcanoes I think the best thing to do now is talk to you about something that we've joked about in the past <laughs> since you've done it uh, is not as dangerous but it's just as interesting is when you were tasked, I think, again by the BBC to scurry away into a bunker for 10 days with oh, yeah. no daylight. Yeah, the, um, <laughs> it was a BBC Horizon doc. Um, and they, <laughs> this was a no-brainer for me. Basically, the things we joke about, I was like, I'll tell you what he's going to do, and we can't talk about that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I can easily whittle away 10 days. Um, the, it, it was a BBC Horizon Doc on um, circadian rhythms, sleep patterns, jet lag, how that affects people. And I didn't... Circadian rhythms, explain. So circadian rhythm is, is not just your rhythm of sleep, when you go to sleep, when you wake up, what your sleep pattern is throughout your sleep cycle. It's also each of your internal organs has its own circadian rhythm based on a 24-hour roughly. So a circadian... I'm not a scientist, obviously, and I can't remember exactly the f- format, but... In a 24-hour period, you sleep for a bit and then you're awake for a bit and then that runs like and that. And everything inside you does the same thing. Yeah, so, so your organs... know when to do that. Yeah, your stomach. And, and from what they told me before I went into the bunker was that um, that you've got... You've got basically got 24 hours. Your body's reset by daylight every day. Um, and so that being reset by daylight, you live in this 24-hour world, which we've manufactured. But mm-hmm. your circadian rhythm is actually anything between 24 and 26 hours so when you cut so when you cut someone off from time and daylight and they're in the darkness they then go into i guess like free fall so you you might be adding 50 minutes on to your day every day so you go to bed at two o'clock the next day it's 2:40. the next day it's 3 20 um so in in just quickly whilst you're in that in that bunker yeah down deepest, darkest, southwest of the England. Yeah. You didn't have any idea of time. You didn't no. have a stopwatch. You didn't. No. So you couldn't like. So they at least say right. I'm going to do a 20 minute workout. No. You didn't really know. You never. So so this is the interesting thing. Like some of the stuff that I've taken away from it have genuinely uh, helped me, which is weird. And you know, everyone should do time in a bunker. Um, we just to, like so these these are the things right so you're underground so there's no sound it's in the soundproof room the sound of silence is deafening yeah it is like debilitatingly deafening and and I've you know that's the first time I've truly heard it silence you had no music no so they walk me down it's like three flights of stairs under the ground they put me in a room they lock it it's dark um, they've got little lights because they're filming but it's I don't know, 10 watt bulbs. You can't do it. You can't see it. It's like... You basically got tortured by the BBC. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, they, but what was amazing is they take all the tech off you. There's no contact with the outside world at all. Um, there's no clocks. There's no time. So interestingly, if you get your head down at home, you know what time you go to bed and you wake up on an alarm. Roughly your circadian rhythm sorts you out, right? So you know that you've been asleep for five hours. When you go into the bunker... And you get your head down and you wake up, you have no idea what time you went to bed and what time you woke up. So you don't know how long you've been asleep. So it could be two hours, it could be four, it could be eight, it could be ten. And then so you've got ten days of this cycle 
and and actually, so you can't count days because you don't know when it's daylight or dark. And so what you have to do is then, you know, I drew ten boxes on the on the wall with a pen, <laughs> and I just it's like being in, in well, it was solitary confinement. And so I was every every sleep cycle, I would then sort of mark off what I thought was a day, and I would I would try and you know, so we did um you do this sort of uh, trips prone to capture course, don't you? And you, they'd sort of teach you about keeping your mind busy and, and how to split up your days and split up your time. And so I was sort of like writing out a timetable on the wall about, you know, I had to do fizz at this time or, or not this time because you don't have time, but you got to do fizz for about an hour. Fizz is PT. Yeah, you got to do exercise for about an hour and it's in the dark. So I'm like doing burpees in the dark and, you know, press ups. And it's, you know, it's depressing. It's like, it's like distilling everything about training and everything I hate about it, you know, it's just like all I'm doing is going up and down in the dark. Like, what's the point? But um, ten days rambling on, ten days in the dark on your own, no time, no people, no comms, no noise, nothing. Um, was like a is like a complete reset. The film was about circadian rhythms, which I wasn't massively interested in. By the end of it, I was much more interested in mental health and what that meant to me and what that means to when you know when I talk to people that say they've they, they um you know they have an issues with sort of mental health and um it seems like if you're not getting enough daylight and you're not getting enough exercise and you're not having enough social interaction with people it seems like to me anyway it's not a long section of time before you could find yourself with some some fairly traumatic either stress anxiety or or depression yeah i was lucky enough that i knew it was 10 days because i had to come out and fly to greenland on day 10 so (laughs) to 24 hour daylight which was a complete (laughs) head fuck but um so so inside the bunker um i came out with this new sort of appreciation of how much and how vital exercise daylight and human interaction is to to good mental health um, so it was for me. It was much more about that than the the sleep. It, yeah, I mean, it was fascinating when he told me he was doing it. I was like, "What the, you know, literally, what the fuck?" And then actually, if he thinks he was sort of like, I get annoyed if I send Aldo a text message or a WhatsApp and he doesn't reply reasonably quickly. <laughs> yeah. And then that was probably for me probably a longer ten days than it was for him because I was like, I can't, I can't, I can't pester him. It's not. He's the, the, the funny part of it was I. So I was in there, no relationship to time whatsoever. They then come down and get me on day 10. I'm already starting to panic and unwind because I think I've made the wrong calculation. Maybe I'm on day nine. Um, They come down, get me, come out. We do an interview. Then they stick me in the car with the researcher. She drives me down to the station and I'm still, it's like the Matrix. I can smell every single plant that I'm driving (laughs) past. And like you can see, it's like all these scents and smells and, you know, it's like the Matrix. And, um, get to the train station and I'm still sort of got my sunglasses on because I can hardly see and I'm running up the stairs to get the train and just as I get there the guy's like blows the whistle and I was like I was like you've still got a minute and a half and he's like because I've just been giving my watch back and he's like no mate you just missed it sorry train pulls off and I'm like no I've had 10 days of not being slave to time or man and then, and then I missed the train by the one minute <laughs> and then I have to pay 200 quid to get back to London in a taxi <laughs> <laughs> Jesus that's, that's an amazing story mate and Cheers, one dude. we've not really spoken no, about no we haven't I'm happy, yeah. about, I'm happy about that 
Mate, moving away from 10 days in a bunker, which isn't that scary, but it can be, um, you know, sort of petrifying in a different way. Real quickly, you deal with fear on a pretty much a daily basis. How do you manage it? Um, managing fear has, 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 has always been a difficult one for me. I'll try and keep it short. But um, initially, when I was first doing stuff in the military, you know, where they make you like, I don't know, in the Marines in training, you're constantly doing things which progressively scaring you a bit more, like dunker drills in the helicopter, you're under the water. Mm-hmm. Um, and I suppose over the years, I've just got used to listening to people who know what they're talking about um, and, and doing exactly what they what they say. But when it comes to dealing with environmental factors like exploding volcanoes, rock fall, wild animals, um, I always f- feel like up until recently, I always felt like, you know, when you get that adrenaline buzz and you're like, that that was fear. Mm-hmm. But actually, I, you know, getting to realize more that that's actually sort of like body getting ready to then help me lift, run, fight, do whatever I need to do. Um, I often, so the way I deal with fear is, is I actually break it down and try and step back from it and look, I, am, I, am I right to be scared? Because there are times on Narcos, for example, inside the real narcos, that we were right to be scared. Mm. And that fear allows you to then take action, you know, to get you out of that situation. Um, so I always, first of all, look at it, assess it. Is it something that I need to be worried about? Is it something that I've trained for? Is it something that's that's subjective, objective, whatever? Um, and then I, you know, it's my job to mitigate as many of these risks as possible. So I, once I've sorted as many of the risks out, um, as I can, then the rest of it, it potentially is, is down to luck, training, and and keeping your sh- keeping your shit wired when everyone else is losing theirs round about you. And and if if you are genuinely scared, just find a job to do, find someone else that you can focus your attention on and sort them out, and then that takes your your mind off it. Sweet, happy days. Basically, use fear to focus. Yeah. Um. Lastly, mate, always ask a question at the end. What works for you in terms of looking after yourself mentally and physically? What do you do? Uh, yeah, cool. So, so basically my job is all about me being functionally fit. Don't need abs, don't need big arms, don't need as much as I'd like them. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, you know, I don't need excess weight. Um, so for me, to be honest, like for me, mental health is, is much more important and prevalent than physical health because if you've, I feel like if I've got good mental health from being outside, from working outside, from that feeling of purpose of being after something, whether it's a job, whether it's, you know, a goal, whatever it is, that mental health and that feeling good in my head then allows me to train. If I'm not feeling good, like if I've been at home for two months and, you know, I've got no jobs coming in and insidious voice starts sort of taking away in your head about how good you are are you that good in the first place who even are you then fizz goes out the window so so my training goes out the window so you know for me to keep in good physical shape to be functionally fit for my work I need to keep my head in good order first of all and that you know it's like meeting mates it's you know going for a beer it's training you know it's like it's being outside it's all that stuff getting outdoors into the wild get outside i mean yeah exactly i mean you know from doing the yukon like Mm. it's soon time outside is is seldom wasted you know it's 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 words to live by agreed mate that was awesome 
I mean, we've spoken about stuff we've never spoken about, which is an amazing thing, and mm. we should probably do this more often, but we just end up going to the pub and getting a little bit drunk and having a great time. But anyway, mm. thank you very you, much. Yeah. Thank you for having awesome. us on. Thanks very much to Aldo and I hope you enjoyed the chat. Really appreciate you listening and don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and follow me and the Book of Man for the latest news. Thanks to Talisker for sponsoring and make sure you follow them too. Cheers. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.